welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Rachel Maddow, Tom Hartman, The Young Turks, The Onion Radio News, and NPR. Paul Rykoff. He's the executive director of Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America. He's also the author of a book called Chasing Ghosts, Failures and Facades in Iraq, A Soldier's Perspective. And he has a cult. Hi, Paul. (laughs) How are you doing? Best intro of the year so far. (laughs) I'm all right, Rachel. You somehow gave me a cold through the phone. Yeah, I can't. You can't even blame me for doing this in some more traditional way because I haven't seen you in months. True. Oh, um, sorry that you're sick. You sound um, you That's sound right. like a teenager. I'm not complain. All right. Well, you could if you wanted to. Yeah, I could. This is liberal but... talk radio. You can do anything you want. Less <laughs> <laughs> lesson learned. Paul, um, I have been complaining a lot publicly um, about Barack Obama's decision to have Rick Warren come do the invocation um, at his inauguration because Rick Warren is so vocally and aggressively anti-gay. Not just that he's anti-gay marriage, but he's really um, he's He's mean, hateful, hateful um, yep. about gay people, and he's been a real political activist against gay rights. And so it's been I feel like it's a, it was a bad move by Barack Obama. At the same time that we learned that Rick Warren had been offered to uh, offered that invitation, we saw floated the possibility that Obama might pick an openly gay man to be secretary of the Navy. Um, Bill White. I wanted to ask you what you know about Bill White and about the prospect that he would get that appointment. I know Bill White pretty well. He's actually a mentor of mine. He um, has been a leader on, on veterans' issues and military affairs um, through the Fisher House uh, families, through the Fisher families, also the Intrepid Center, uh, the World War II Museum, which just reopened off uh, the west side of Manhattan. Bill White has probably done more for military families and veterans than anyone in America. Hmm. He's raised hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, he's helped thousands of people. Uh, he knows the issues uh, and is incredibly well-respected throughout the military. He also happens to be openly gay, um, and he's not you know, shy about talking about that at all. Um, so, you know, obviously it's unique for the military community and the veterans community, but I think he's incredibly qualified. Excuse do, me, qualified. Do you think that it would um, immediately put the don't ask, don't tell issue on the front burner? It would. I think it would have to. Um, I think there are still plenty of people in the military who are uncomfortable with the issue, uh, who want the policy to stay in place. But um, I think this might be the way to force it forward. Um, Politically, I I don't know if it's the right way to force the issue forward. I mean, you know, that's up for debate. But um, I think the bottom line is that Bill's incredibly qualified uh, and he'd do as good a job as anybody. And and if, you know, he's the right person for the job, put him there and let him let him do it. Um, I think you will see, you know, no matter what happens, you will see some pushback from the older elements to the military, but you've got older elements of the military who still think PTSD doesn't exist. So I think it's a real cultural shift that's going to have to happen over the course of the Obama administration. Now, you know, taking on Don't Ask, Don't Tell, I wouldn't recommend it in the first year or two, um, but I think it will be, you know, something that they start to erode, they start to work over. Colin Powell had an amazing interview on CNN a few weeks ago with Fareed Zakaria where he recommended that the policy be reviewed. He said it's a 15-year-old policy, um, the country's changed, the culture's changed, and it's time for Congress to review a policy that became a law, uh, which wasn't exactly what Colin Powell had intended for it to do. 
If you had the choice, would you repeal Don't Ask, Don't Tell? I mean, if politically, if it were possible, would you get rid of it? I personally would, yeah. The organization, we're still trying to figure out where our generation stands, to be honest with you, so we haven't taken a, an official position on it. Um, we're going to take some time in the next couple of months to figure out where our membership's at and to understand where this new generation is on the issue. Personally, I think it's long past two. Um, I think there are plenty of, of great people serving in the military who are gay, and then it's about equal rights. So uh, if we're really going to treat people as equals, they should have equal rights to serve and unfortunately be wounded and die, and, and that's already happened. So I think it's, it's long past two. How to do that is, is a much tougher thing. I thought Colin Powell was really smart politically in kind of splitting the difference and saying don't necessarily repeal it, but let's review it. Let's send it back to the Congress and make them have a national conversation about the issue. Um, I think you know there's going to be a need to push this through at some point, um, but I think timing is going to be key to get the consensus in the Congress. It's going to be necessary to move the issue. When you think about, um, you know, sort of just in policy terms, what's the right thing to do? That's a much easier discussion, actually, I think, around don't ask, don't tell. Um, just in the sense, I mean, people can be for it or against it, but uh, I think that that argument is, is one with uh, that, that Americans are familiar with. The, the issue that is much thornier and that I think is a much more complicated, nuanced, difficult decision is how to achieve changing that policy if right. we agree that it should be changed. And I mean, when I think when Bill Clinton took it on in 1993, he did it from with the best of intentions, but he screwed it up so freaking royally um, that we ended up having more gay people thrown out of the service under Don't Ask, Don't Tell than had been thrown out of the service before that policy existed. He made things so much worse, and he set back efforts to get rid of that policy by probably 20 years um, by having done it the wrong way, by having politically screwed it up. And maybe it's that he shouldn't have brought it up in the first place. Maybe it's that he was just defeated, and the price of defeat feet was really high. But um, I don't I, I don't I don't know how I would advise Obama to proceed on the issue. It seems like it's really fraught with risk in terms of uh, and, and the people who bear the risk. If 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 it doesn't go there, if it doesn't go Obama's way, um, are the people who are most vulnerable in this current situation already, which is gay people serving in the military, but not openly. Right. Well, I think you have to think about the timing issue. And I think we just saw what, what a huge hit um, gay rights took with Prop 8. And, and we have to think largely about where the country stands on this issue. And I think for Obama, politically, he's got to think about how to get some momentum out of the gate, especially on foreign policy issues where the, the, the Democratic Party and the Democrats don't have a long-standing, uh, strong relationship right now. And that's in part due to Clinton's decision to try to ram through don't ask, don't tell. Um, there are misconceptions about Democrats in funding. Uh, you had controversial anti-war candidates like John Kerry. So there's a lot of bridge building that needs to be done. And he can do it through Michelle by working uh, on military families. He can do it by consistently funding pay increases. He can do it by understanding and connecting with the military community. And I think that's a smart strategy for establishing a foundation. Once he has their trust, then you can talk to the more radioactive issues like don't ask, don't tell. But I think, unfortunately, it is going to take some time to get the military and to get the country um, ready to have that type of conversation. Um, and I, I think, you know, even things like this Rick, Rick Warren issue may be a way to jumpstart the conversation and create this, the real social movement that's going to be necessary to change the country's opinion on, on a very divisive and, in my opinion, you know, outdated and, and even hateful issue. Yeah, it is interesting to see the the political ripples of these uh, of these political actions. Like, right, we've got Prop 8 passing, which um, shocked and thereby energized the gay rights movement and people who have never thought of themselves as the gay rights movement but actually support civil rights. People got mad, people got organized, and there has been a big backlash. Similarly, the Rick Warren issue um, sort of, I, I think, touched a... 
it, it sort of touched off a uh, a, a reaction um, and and galvanized people in a way that wouldn't have happened without that sort of setback. And so now we are seeing um, a lot of energy around these issues that previously I think have been seen as really marginal um, in a way that might I don't know might create a movement that pushes the dialogue forward. And I think, it's, you know, part of it's the power of the bully pulpit, and I think part of it has to start with Barack Obama explaining to people that, um, you know, anti-gay language is not okay, yeah. and that discriminating on the basis of homosexuality is not okay. That's kind of the learning that has to go on in this country, and, and the social acceptance that has to exist in those corners of our country where people have conversations around bars, around water coolers, where they say things that they probably shouldn't say. Mm. We need to create that culture um, that, that really permeates all elements of our society, where people understand that it's not okay to think about this in, in that way. And I think that's going to take a longer time, and, and politics is always the art of the possible. And I think that that generation of ideas and that changing of opinions will eventually get us to that point. Yeah. It would be a lot easier for him to do that, of course, if he were actually pro-gay rights. Right. Exactly. <laughs> well, I think that's he's taken, rightfully taken a lot of heat on that issue, and yeah. a lot of people are surprised by it. Sometimes I feel so confused. Siegel is with us, winner of the Pulitzer Prize, his new book, Claim, Claim of Privilege, about how in many ways our civil liberties have, have evaporated or are evaporated. Very welcome to the show. Uh, pleasure to be with you, Tom. Thank you for, for, uh, for joining us. Uh, the, the, back in 1953, U.S. versus Reynolds, this first made, I mean, you know, John Adams actually claimed state secrets rights and threw people in jail under the Alien and Seditions Act for violating that um, in, in 1797, as I recall. But um, in 1953, this became a legal doctrine. Um, what's, where are we at since then? Well, the, yes, you're, first of all, you're absolutely right. The, the state secrets privilege didn't, didn't first just get, get created by the 1953 decision. It was in common law for a long time before that, but it hadn't been recognized formally or codified by the Supreme Court in this country, and it hadn't, there hadn't been no, there had been no procedures established for how really it works and, and what the rules were. Uh, that's what happened in 1953, the Supreme Court landmark decision, U.S. versus Reynolds, formally recognized the privilege for the first time and most important laid down rules for how how it, it could be invoked by the government started very slowly uh, in fact uh, it was only used invoked about five times uh, in the first uh, 20 years or so 53 to 73 um, but it has sure accelerated since then around the 1970s is when the executive branch really started discovering the power that they had with this and started multiplying the Bush 
administration uh, by far has used it more than any other. Now, the, the MacGuffin of your book, the, the kind of plot device, the, the thing that it revolves around is this B-29 crash. Tell us about that. Right. A very mysterious. You know, I'm glad you said the book reads somewhat like a novel. I, what drew me to this book as much as the political issues is the fact that it it, it, it is a fantastic tale uh, with a lot of very interesting characters, and it starts with this mysterious plane crash. U.S. Air Force B-29 takes off uh, October 1948 to test some uh, uh, secret navigational equipment. Uh, it was a precursor to the uh, guided missile program, really. Uh, three civilian engineers were on board. The plane uh, engine catches fire. The plane crashes over Waycross, Georgia, October 6, 1948. The three civilian engineers perish, uh, and their uh, their widows file suit claiming negligence against the United States government. Right, and the government was claiming essentially, hey, this is uh, you know top secret military stuff. And at the end of the day, when when they dug out through all the way all the way through the bottom of the thing, it turned out that it was just. Uh, I, I realize I'm oversimplifying, and I hope I'm not giving away your book. I, I don't think I am at all. Some of it's uh, in the flap copy, I think. <laughs> yeah, that 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 essentially the the uh, the government was just trying to make themselves look good. This is not unlike the the you know the case of. Uh, you know the the Jessica Lynch story, or the you know, or the Pat uh, right. Tilney story, or whatever. Exactly. In fact, it's really important to 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 understand that, in fact, the government did not first Tillman, try to claim state secrets at all in this case. What happened is that this lawsuit is filed, and the widows uh, during discovery request something pretty normal: the accident report, the Air Force mm-hmm. accident report, and witness statements. How else are they going to? All they're trying to do, they're not trying to get any state secrets. They're trying to establish what was the cause of the of the plane crash right. uh, that killed their men, and uh, then the government, when the government first uh, refused to turn over the accident report, it had nothing to do with state secrets. They just said that they that it was an executive housekeeping privilege that when they do an internal investigation, that they are allowed to keep that the, the results of that investigation to themselves. Uh, and, uh, and and to be honest, that was the argument for about the first year. They would not even, and this is really important, Tom, they would not even turn it over to the judge for private examination in the judge's chambers. They said that they had a unilateral right to to withhold the document. That judge, very brave judge, William Kirkpatrick, federal district judge, sitting in in the height of the Cold War, lots of pressures, just like today, sense of apocalyptic danger from the Soviet Union, and yet he said, he stood up to the government and said, no way, you don't have that unilateral power. You've got to show me the documents. I'll look at them and change and decide whether they, in fact... And the government did produce the documents, unlike right now, where you've got the Senate, the, the House of Representatives and the Senate both issuing subpoenas for, for Harriet Myers, mm-hmm. uh, Josh Bolton, Karl Rove, and in all cases, these members of the administration saying, sorry... You know, we have the right to, this is state secrets. We have the right Well, this to is that. exactly a, this is why the story that I wrote that begins back there in the Cold War era resonates so much today is because the Bush administration is using the legacy of the U.S. versus Reynolds uh, and the state secrets privilege all the time now. But, you know, let me, let's make clear, I want the listeners to understand, they did not turn over the documents back then. Oh, when, when, the, when Judge Kirkpatrick ordered them, first they said it was just an executive privilege. Then they claimed it was state secrets. 
they started a year into the litigation to say this case contains, these documents contain national security state secrets. That's why we can't hold it over. The judge still insisted that they let him see. Uh, they refused to turn over the documents, and so Judge Kirkpatrick actually found in default against the government and, and, and awarded the widows what they were seeking. Hmm. Okay. So but then there was a, but then there was an appeal, another appeal, and it finally got to the Supreme Court. Right. And at the Supreme Court, what happened? At the Supreme Court, after two two levels of judges had ruled in, in favor of the of, of the widows, uh, U.S. Supreme Court, uh, Fred Vinson was the Chief Justice. Height of the Cold War, sense of danger all around them. Nineteen March, nineteen fifty three, they reversed the two lower court uh, rulings and found in favor of the Air Force and the government, saying that they did, in fact, have a state secrets privilege and could withhold the documents, or that right. judges should not, to be more precise, that judges should not automatically request to see the documents if the government can prove to them an argument that there is a reasonable danger for if those documents are exposed. Yeah, this is like Santa Clara County versus uh, Southern Pacific Railroad or Buckley versus Viejo as as it relates to the rights of voters and, and, and uh, you know, in the political process, uh, or I mean, this is, or <laughs> I was going to say Bush v. Gore, but that's actually not supposed to relate to anything. But right. I don't know what that meant. Yeah, yeah. Um, or or this uh, any number of recent cases. The, case, the cases rise. Uh, the time. What happens is is that uh, at the start there was you could there's a balancing act here. It says don't ask to see the documents if they can prove to you that there's reasonable danger. But this is like asking judges to fly blind. How right. can you know if the documents really contain? State How does this tie, you know, for example, right now under the FISA legislation, my, my read of this FISA bill, or right. this, this amendment to FISA, because FISA is fine, it's going to stay in place if this legislation is not passed. If this legislation is passed, then George Bush will have the authority, without going to a court, to wiretap Barack Obama's BlackBerry. Right. I that's don't right. get why the Democrats would say that that's an okay thing. And does that tie into the Sullivan case? Well, it does. Uh, the, the Reynolds case, it does. You know, first of all, case. I don't get it either. <laughs> I have no wisdom here why they rolled over on it, except that uh, there were worse alternatives. Basically, I, I just was reading Obama's explanation for it, literally, on a blog just before you, we started mm-hmm. our conversation. And, and a lot of this is a result of certain of compromise. That there was yeah, but worse I think his, his explanation is disingenuous. You know, yeah. he says warrants are going to expire. Well, they're not warrants under FISA. They're, they're under, yeah. the, under the legislation that gave Bush too much power. Right. Well, I regret that. It's a puzzlement to me, too, Tom. It really is. I, I, I regret this, but it does absolutely all of this arises from U.S. Reynolds. Because the underlying issue in the, in the whole issue of U.S. versus Reynolds and state secrets privilege is really balance of powers, separation of powers in our system of government. And it gives the power to the executive branch exclusively. Exactly. Well, the executive branch, in a sense, seizes that power. The, the executive branch insists that it has that power unilaterally that it's it's really revolutionary when you think about it what the what the uh, what the executive branch did in ever since US versus Reynolds is not just say we have a certain right to do this and it says once we make this claim there is no right of, of judicial review at all Pourtant quelqu'un m'a dit que tu m'aimes encore C'est quelqu'un qui m'a dit que tu m'aimes encore Serait-ce possible alors 
que le destin se moque bien de nous Qu'il ne nous donne rien et qu'il nous promet tout Paraît que le bonheur est à portée de main Alors on tend la main et on se retrouve fou Pourtant quelqu'un m'a dit Que tu m'aimes encore C'est quelqu'un qui m'a dit Que tu m'aimes encore Serait-ce possible alors You know, I was just telling you in the last segment, if they say they're here to protect your kids, hide the kids, Republican in this country, of, uh, tough on crime, especially sex crimes, and caught uh, trying to solicit underage boys with child pornogra pornography in his possession. Of course, always, always, they're unbelievable, man. And by the way, this hater guy and uh, his, what if, you know, I hadn't thought of that, hater? I guess he was, wasn't he? Uh, and his uh, lover in the far-right fascist party that we were just telling you about in Austria, uh, they said, uh, Hader did at different times, the Jews were filthy and crooked, and he praised the SS of the Nazis. So don't, don't shed any tears for this someone, bitch, right? And uh, by the way, uh, if you didn't know, the SA, the brown shirts, uh, during the reign of the Nazis, were led by Ernst Rom, who was also homosexual. Remember, the Nazis put pink triangles, that, that's where the pink triangles came from, put pink triangles on, on uh, gay folks, put them in concentration camps and killed them, right? I mean, it doesn't get any worse than that. Gays were 100% part of the Holocaust. And meanwhile, the head of the brown shirts is gay, and so is his young deputy. And they would have gay sex and then put gay people in gas chambers. Man, this self-hatred that some people have, man, it burns up the whole world. If it was just contained to them, I'd feel sorry for them. But they try to burn the whole world with it. It's madness. Madness, man. Don't believe any of it. You know what? I'm going to go to Ellen. Because, you know, I was going to say this for the third hour, but Ellen's exactly right. Let's talk. She talks about uh, Sarah Palin's stance on gay marriage. Uh, you know, Sarah Palin's so against gay marriage now, with all these stories, I'm wondering. Is Sarah Palin gay? I don't know. What's, you know, I was just about to say, what's up her ass? Uh, all right, uh, all right, I'm the bad guy. Anyway, see, what's her problem, right? Uh, Ellen, let her have it. Go ahead. Hey, I have something to say right now, okay? So I told you I've been watching CNN a whole lot lately. You've been watching? All right. I've been watching way too much, too much, I think, because they've invited me to their Christmas party. But now, I don't know if you saw this, but uh, vice presidential candidate Governor Sarah Palin says that she's in favor of a federal ban on gay marriage. Basically she wants to change the Constitution. So if you're wondering, I'm sure you are, how I feel about this, I don't like it. I don't like it. I don't agree. I'm gay that I think we should all be equal, but um, I feel that we're all equal. And I don't know what people are scared of. I, you know, maybe they think that their children will be influenced. And I got to say, I was raised by two heterosexuals. I was surrounded by heterosexuals. Just everywhere I looked, heterosexuals. And they did not influence. I mean, I dabbled in high school. Who didn't? But I, everyone dabbled, you know? I think people are going to be who they're going to be, and we need to learn to love them for who they are and let them love who they want to love. 
It's so simple. I mean, what a simple concept. Why don't you get out of people's bedrooms, man? Why don't you leave people alone? And, and then Sarah Palin came out the, the other day and said, oh, yeah, John McCain agrees with me on all my uh, far-right positions on abortion and stem cells, et cetera, et cetera. First of all, he's, she's got his position wrong. He does, he's extreme, but not quite as extreme as Sarah Palin. But who knows? Maybe he changed his mind. He, that guy will listen to anybody. Now Sarah Palin's running around there saying, yeah, come on, let's put an anti-gay marriage amendment in the Constitution. I, now, there's a Prop 8 here in California that I want to talk about a little bit, too, now, now that I'm worked up on this issue. But, but before we go to that, let me just say how, how important Ellen is. I, I don't want to overhype it or anything like that, but... Look, this is how we change people's minds. You look at Ellen, and she's gay, and she's got this show that people love. And I guarantee you she's changed the minds of tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of women, and probably some men as well that watch her show that go, Oh, yeah, me. look, I like Ellen. I really like her a lot. I like the way she dances. I like she's funny. She says, yeah, maybe she loves Portia de Rosa. So what? Okay, that doesn't bother me. You know what? I changed my mind. Maybe gays aren't that bad, right? So that's why I think uh, Ellen is enormously important. I really do. And she does a great job, too. There's another clip of Obama on the Ellen show we might get to soon on the show. Uh, we'll get to it at some point in today's show. Uh, all right. Now, California has this Prop 8. What's going on here? All of a sudden, it's leading. It was losing by a wide margin. Uh, what is Prop 8? Prop 8 is saying that the Supreme Court of California got things wrong when they said gay marriage should be allowed uh, in California. And basically, they want to overturn that and say, no, um, marriage in California has to be between a man and a woman, and gay people are not allowed to get married. That's what Proposition 8 is, eight, is about. And it was losing by about 15 points or so, uh, like, I don't know, a month ago, two months ago, and all of a sudden it's winning. And I said, what the hell, man, in California? And why is it winning, and why did it switch? So I look into it a little bit. You know what happened? The money. Money started pouring in, and they started doing ads. And it's all over California. And the ads say, oh, they're going to change the education system. And they're going to come after your kids, and they're going to tell the teachers that they have to teach the kids that being gay is uh, all right, and that it's just as good as being straight. It's a total lie, 100% lie. Prop 8 has nothing to do with that. The Supreme Court decision had nothing to do with that. But they just threw it out there. They're like, yeah, no, that's going to change uh, education. And uh, they started running all sorts of other ads, totally full of lies. And then I looked into who did the financing on it. You know who covered 30 to 40% of the money raised to pass Prop 8? The Mormon Church. Now, you wonder sometimes why I get pissed off at religion. I mean, get the out of our lives, man. What the hell is the Mormon church coming into California trying to ruin gay people's lives, take away their happiness and their love for each other? What is it your business, Mormon church? Is Mitt Romney on the case, by the way? Has he chastised his church for this? My guess is he won't. And this is what will happen. I'm, I'm going to make this prediction, and I don't know, some of you will maybe will remember it 20 years from now. At some point, of course, Americans are going to accept gay marriages. Obviously, right? And they're going to realize, oh, wow, it turns out gay people aren't really aren't any different than straight people, right? And then at that point, Mitt Romney's going to come in, because he's still going to be around, and he's going to say, oh, I challenged my church on this, and I'm really glad they changed on this. But remember today, 
He didn't challenge them at all. He loved their position. Now, why do I tell you this story? Because remember when Mitt Romney claimed his dad walked with Martin Luther King Jr. and it was a total lie, right? Back, he was, I think he was 31. I'm, he, I might be wrong about the numbers, but he was a grown-ass man when the Mormon church tried to uh, push for segregation and didn't allow black people into the Mormon church. I mean, that, he, Mitt Romney was an adult. He never fought against it. Never, right? And then he comes around now and he's like, oh, yeah, oh, man, keeping the races apart. I was so against that. Yeah, it's a good thing I was right about that. Really, Mitt, what'd you do? What'd you do? And then later, all these hypocrites, they'll say, oh, no, yeah, yeah, I, ooh, yeah, right, no, totally. Meanwhile, Mormon Church today pouring in 30 to 40% of the money for that Prop 8 commercials, and Mitt Romney not only doesn't fight it, but loves it. Because that's he ran his campaign on that. I'm far right. I'm far right. More far right than John McCain is, or Rudy Giuliani is, or anybody else was. All right. So now you think, oh, that's bad. But you know what? There's some good news out of this. People started to fight back. Once they saw that this thing uh, might pass, uh, people on the left, as Mitch McConnell would say, you know, I think we did it in the post game show yesterday. Mitch McConnell, the Senate Minority Leader for the Republicans, is in some trouble in Kentucky in his race. And he blamed the left for his troubles. Yeah, that's because you're running against them. I don't understand how that's a bad thing. Yeah, we're running against you. That's why you got trouble, because we're kicking your ass, right? So uh, it, in this case, the left got together. And the gay rights groups and the human rights groups uh, went to the teachers' union and to the nurses' union and said, hey, can you help a brother out here? We need some help here. Can you have our back? And the teachers and the nurses of California said, hell yeah, we got your back. And they put some money in, and they started doing some ads, and now the numbers are changing a little bit. And I heard one of the ads. I, I was in a local store, and I heard the ad that the teachers' union ran, and I loved it. They said, look, this is a lie. Nobody's going to be teaching any of this stuff. It's just about you know who people want to live with and who they want to love, and these people need to get out of our lives. God bless, man. We fight together, we work together, we win together. Face down on top of your bed, oh why did I give it up to you? Is this how I shoot myself up high? Just high enough to get through again for false affection again. Break down inside. Mamma Mia, and I think you're gonna like it. Michael Phelps has escaped and must be recaptured. I can't stop voting for Obama. There was blood and duck sauce just everywhere. The Onion Radio News looks back at 2008, a year that was too beautiful for this world. 
Hello, this is Doyle Redland. In November, the state of California voted to rescind the right of gay couples to be married. Not to be outdone, however, the state of Alabama went a step further by super-illegalizing homosexual marriage. Alabama Attorney General Troy King made it clear that with the bill's passage, simply putting the words gay and marriage together could bring a two-year jail term. Any citizen who spends more than five minutes with a member of the same sex is going to end up facing a mess of angry hounds. Traditional marriage between family members in Alabama will remain legal, however, in order to preserve the highly endangered Alabama forehead. This has been Doyle Redland with a look back at 2008, a year that flew by like a plastic shopping bag in a wind tunnel. Hands up, up in the air. Nothing to change From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel. And I'm Melissa Block. Gay, lesbian, and bisexual teens and young adults have one of the highest rates of suicide attempts, along with health problems including substance abuse. But new research shows that when a parent is neutral about a son or daughter being gay, or even only mildly rejecting, that goes a long way to reduce a child's risk. NPR's Joseph Shapiro reports. As a young social worker, Caitlin Ryan worked in Atlanta. It was the 1980s, and back then, many young men didn't feel safe telling their families they were gay. They left home. And so young people came to Atlanta from Biloxi or Birmingham or Jacksonville, and my experience working with them was especially poignant and, um, and very sad. It was the start of the AIDS epidemic. So often, they'd be in intensive care in the hospital, and their parents would fly in for work from wherever they lived, and they'd find their 25-year-old son dying of AIDS. Um, for the very first time, they'd learn that their child was gay, and that their time left in the world with them was very limited. Their time to reconcile, to let them know that they loved them, all of those years were lost. Today, Ryan runs a research program at San Francisco State University. She still sees gay kids who say their parents reject them, are violent, or even kick them out of the house. Ryan and her researchers conducted lengthy interviews with more than 200 gay, lesbian, and bisexual young adults. Ryan tried to judge whether, as adolescents, they'd faced low, moderate, or high levels of rejection from their families. That's hard to measure, so she looked at things like, did parents try to get a kid to change their sexual orientation, or try to stop them from being with other gay kids? Parents thought that by trying to change them, that would make them happy. But actually, it put their children at great risk, and so when we shared that with parents, they were shocked. The research appears in the current issue of the journal Pediatrics. Kids who had experienced lots of rejection were nearly eight and a half times more likely to have attempted suicide, nearly six times more likely to report high levels of depression, and almost three and a half times more likely to use illegal drugs or engage in unprotected sex. 
That was compared to adolescents from families that may have felt uncomfortable with a gay kid, but were neutral or only mildly rejecting. And that's what's got other health researchers excited about Ryan's work, because it shows that just a little bit of acceptance can go a long way. The big impact of Ryan's study is pointing out that family rejection is so harmful. And having a family that accepts them is a huge protective factor. That's Effie Malley of the federally funded Suicide Prevention Research Center. She's done her own research and released another study this month that shows gay teens have very high rates of suicide attempts. She says parents matter, and so do peers, teachers, and society in general. What I'd like to see down the road is that parents and people who work with families counseling them would really take to heart Ryan and her co-author's research about not trying to change who the parents are or their beliefs, but just to help them recognize the words they use and the actions that are harmful to their kids and to stop using those behaviors. Leonore Holmstrom is a parent who's faced her own worries about having a gay child. She's an elegant 64-year-old with bright red lipstick. And on this day, she's arrived at a modest house in Santa Rosa, California, with colorful plastic toys across the front lawn. Ah, I'm so happy to see you. <laughs> what kind of a kiss is that? What kind of She gets a big wet kiss from her five-year-old granddaughter. When I got really interested in dogs, I, I start knowing that they lick instead of kiss. <laughs> Fifteen years ago, Holmstrom figured she'd never have these grandchildren to spend Christmas with after her daughter Juliana told her she was gay. I really didn't want her to be gay. <laughs> this is very common among the Latin American countries. We try to change the kids. It was difficult. I got very depressed. I couldn't talk about it. It's painful. It's a pain that you carry. At first, Holmstrom tried to hide that her daughter was gay from family and friends. Her church taught her that homosexuality was a sin. She had a couple friends who were gay, and their lives, she says, were disastrous. So mainly she worried about her daughter's future. And at first, her daughter did suffer. She dropped out of college for a while. She dealt with depression. She lived in poverty. Then Holmstrom reached out to the girl. Today, she's close to her daughter, her daughter's partner, and their two children. And Holmstrom works as an advocate with other Mexican-American parents of gay kids. I did a lot of things that I tell the mothers, don't do, because I did them. And my daughters suffer because I did them. The new research shows that gay males, particularly Latino males, report the highest levels of family rejection. Joseph Shapiro, NPR News.
listen to uh, Bill O'Reilly and Newt Gingrich talk about gay folks. Uh, apparently, they're fascists, but you knew that. So obvious. And uh, they're trying to impose their will on, upon the American people, which, of course, Newt Gingrich would never do. Or Bill O'Reilly. No, no, no. <laughs> Enforce their will upon the American people? Never, never. Not the conservatives. All right, so uh, let's have a listen in on these two freaks. Clip number 10. We had a church in Michigan invaded by gay activists. We're going to show you the video on Monday of that. We have exclusively a guy in Sacramento fired from his job. We have boycotts called on restaurants. I mean, it is getting out of control very few days after the election. How do you assess that? Look, I think there is a gay and secular fascism in this country that wants to impose its will on the rest of us, is prepared to use uh, violence, to use harassment. Uh, I think it is prepared to use the government if it can get control of it. Uh, I think that it is a very dangerous threat to anybody who believes in traditional religion. And I think if you believe in historic Christianity, uh, you have to confront the fact uh, and Frank, for that matter, if you believe in uh, the historic uh, version of Islam or the historic version of Judaism, uh, you have to confront the reality that these secular extremists uh, are determined to impose acceptance of a series of values that are antithetical. They're the opposite are you of what you're taught in Sunday school. The speed of it. You figured that oh, there'd I, be a, a two-week breathing, you know, like no, when? I think. I think when the left, when, when the radicals lost the vote in California, uh, they are determined to impose their will on this country no matter what the popular opinion, no matter what the law of the land. Uh, you've watched them, for example, in Massachusetts, basically drive the Catholic Church out of running adoption services, uh, drive bring any services, uh, because they impose secular rules that are fundamentally yeah, to, sinful right. from the standpoint, you know. You know what? Uh, you're right, my friend. We're coming for you. Okay? One part you're right about is that uh, we are determined to impose our will upon you, uh, us folks on the progressive side who are secular. Okay? So how you like me now? What are you going to do, tough guy? You're Newt Gingrich, man. You tried to enforce your will upon the American people in the 1990s. I remember. <laughs> I was there, man. So what? You're allowed to do it and we're not? Yes, our idea is that everybody should be equal. It is the most fundamental American idea. Now, in this case, it happens to be gay folks, but it could be anybody. Because you already discriminate against everybody. The right wing has been discriminating against everybody ever since their creation. That's what they've been doing. In the 1960s, they said, oh, these black people are trying to enforce their will upon us with their marches and their demands for rights like they're like white people. No, white people rule, and we will not let them enforce their will upon us. We will enforce our will upon them, they said. Now, they just take out black, you substitute gay. We're straight people, and these gay people think they can enforce their will on us. Now, look, you missed the whole point, Newt, as always. We are all Americans, and we all deserve equal rights. I don't care who it is, right? And ironic that the right talks about how the uh, left and the people who are secular are interested in violence? What are you talking about? Don't, we don't remember the civil rights era? Who were the ones that were violent then? Hosing people off of uh, bridges and beating people and killing people. Who was that? Was the left? No, that was the right, right? And what happened to Matthew Shepard? What happened to so many gay uh, people all across this country for so long? 
What, they were the ones that were doing the violence? No. And you know what? Now they're standing up and they're damn tired of it. And they're saying, damn it, I'm an American. And I'm going to make you respect that. Now, they're not doing it through violence. That's a lie. They're doing it through the most tried and true American thing in the whole wide world. Speech, protests, freedom of assembly. They're cutting out in front of the churches and saying, hey, listen, you spent a ton of money. The Mormon church spent $20 million to try to discriminate against me. Well, I'm right here. I'm going to let you know I'm not in favor of that. And I'm going to point out who did it. It was you. You did it. Okay? You try to take away my rights, and I'm here to tell you that I'm not going to let you. How you like me now? Yes, Newt Gingrich, I am trying to impose my will upon this country so that we have equal rights for everyone. You don't like it? Bring it. Bring it. Let's get it on. I'm not talking about the way you do things, okay, through intimidation and threats of violence, etc. I'm talking about we have a battle of ideas. You could radical. You call us radical. Look, you're, you're talking about history. You are history. <laughs> this is the last battle you'll ever win. 52-48 in California on Prop 8. From now on, the younger people understand that what America is about. They understand the concept of equal rights. And they understand the concept that two people love each other and they want to get together. It doesn't bother anybody else. We have them on our side. You have a bunch of 80-year-olds who are like, Ah, oh, we lost the civil rights movement, but ah, we'll get them on this gay rights. Yeah, you hang on to those. See who winds up becoming history. Your history. Okay, and this is the last one you'll ever win. And you know how we're going to win it? We're going to do it the right way. We're going to argue for our cause. We, you could get, put together protests, assembly, whatever it is, and we're going to let people know what's right and what's wrong and let them decide. We're going to have another vote. That's what, how we do in America. That's what we do. That's how we roll. Okay? So you want to have this debate? I could more than happy to do it. By the way, I almost like this little shout-out to uh, Al-Qaeda over there. These secular extremists trying to impose their way of life to all of us people who are part of historic Christianity and historic Islam. Historic Islam, you know, you don't want to let these gays come in with their secular way of life, right? So, you know, you and I are on the same team, right? No, you are, Newt. You are. The fundamentalist Christians, the fundamentalist Jews, and the fundamentalist Muslims are all on the same team. Always against progress. Always the last people to give in to any decent idea or moving forward. Always dug in, dug in. We're historic Christianity. We're historic Islam. We will not move. <laughs> All right, yeah, you stand with Bin Laden, you stand with Swahiri, you stand with the settlers in the West Bank who don't ever want peace, you stand with the you know Armageddon freaks and talk about your historic uh, Christianity, Judaism, and uh, Islam, and which by of course you, by that you mean fundamentalist. All right, great, no problem. You stand on that side, we'll stand on this side, and we'll see who wins. <laughs> I am entirely confident that you will be vanquished and I will be the one to do it. How you like me now, Newton? Thanks for listening, everybody. I certainly hope that everyone's winter holiday was as thoroughly unproductive as mine was. I know uh, just a day or two before my vacation started, 
I, I so distinctly remember thinking, I can't wait until I'm done working so that I have time and I can get so much work done on the podcast. And, you know, that, that meant, uh, you know, gathering clips, making shows, uh, changing stuff on the website, doing stuff behind the scenes, you know, like a lot of stuff. I had this whole list of to-dos. And, uh, and I've been on vacation for two solid weeks and uh, I did so, I did so close to zero of any of those things that it would have been really hard to do less than what I did and still have a show for you ready um, as early as it is. I mean, it, and you know, you haven't heard an, an, a new show in a couple of weeks, and so you're not thinking that this show is coming out sooner rather than later. But uh, oh boy. Um, what a what a relaxing time, and it, it felt great for sure. But um, here we are. This I'm speaking to you on the first Monday of the new year, and uh, and this will be my first day back to work and uh, the first new podcast. So welcome back, everybody. We made it through 2008. Uh, wasn't so uh, wasn't so bad of a year, I think. Um, all things considered. And so now I just want to say for. Um, possibly the last time I want to mention again that uh, coming up January 10th which is actually this Saturday coming up real fast I'm jumping in the Chesapeake Bay as part of a big fundraiser for the uh, climate change nonprofit that I work for and you know I do I looked at the uh, at the seven-day forecast today um, and it, it looks like it's going to snow. At least, you know, this far out, it's looking like it's going to snow. Which, um... I'm totally excited about, as you can tell. So as we as we come down to the wire, I just want to urge you again to consider making a donation to me for that plunge. And and think of it this way. Don't, don't think about uh, the fact that uh, donating money for me... To, to do this plunge is going to a nonprofit organization and you know this organization has you know some amount of money already and you know your five or ten dollars you know is that really gonna help a, a, a big organization with with uh, you know more than 10 staff members like you know 10 bucks what's that really gonna do and you know I understand that mentality of like you know, if you give $10 to a person, they could buy a couple of lunches with that or something. Uh, give $10 to a nonprofit organization, like, you know, what's it really going to be spent on? I, I really do understand that. But consider this. Uh, I'm coming to you guys trying to raise money myself. And, and you know, everyone on staff has fundraising goals that we're trying to reach. And... Um, and, you know, our, our organization really does depend on, uh, you know, not the 5 or $10 donations, but the collection of all of those 5 or $10 donations. It really does make a difference. So just as an example, I set a goal for myself, just as many, many other uh, people on staff set a goal for $1,000, trying to raise $1,000. And... And I did that knowing, you know, I don't have that much family and I don't have that many friends who 
who are willing to cough up that kind of money. Um, and I was, I'm really kind of banking on you guys because I knew in the back of my head that I'd be talking about it on the show. And I, and I really hoped that you guys could come through in, uh, you know, Barack Obama style, basically. None of you guys need to be giving, you know, 75 or a hundred dollars. Like, absolutely not. I never thought that would happen. What I was really hoping and what I am hoping is that I can get enough of you to give those five or ten dollar donations that it adds up to something substantial. If I can meet that thousand dollar goal, it really does have an impact on what we do. So you may hear more from me on this uh, before Saturday. This may be the last time I talk about it, but I thought I'd try something a little different today and actually play the audio from the video that talks about last year's plunge. I, I think I mentioned before that for for the group, I produced a video from last year's event. Went out with there with a camera, filmed the whole event, came back to the office, and over the course of a week or so, edited together this uh, you know two and a half minute film, something like that. It just it gives a sense of of what the event's like. And it's, it's posted on the website, bestofleft.com. You can go there. You'll see the big fundraiser uh, thing on the front page. And you can see the video there as well, of course. But I thought, just for the hell of it, I would play the audio for you now so you can get a sense of it. And, and then if you want to see the video to, to get a better idea of what's going on, uh, I certainly encourage that. So uh, let's hear the video. Don't you know My name is Mike Tidwell. I'm director of the Chesapeake Climate Action Network. Don't you know talking about a revolution sounds this is going to be the largest global warming gathering in the history of Maryland today. You guys are making history. We have 10 times more people jumping in the bay today than 2 years ago. I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't think climate change wasn't the greatest threat facing us today and maybe ever. One of our team members has a t-shirt that says, I'm hotter than I should be. Poor people gonna rise up and take what's there. Don't you know you better run, run, run? It's happening, global warming is intensifying, human beings are driving it. It's here right now, and here right now we have to do something about it. This is a great day to go for a swim or what? So there you go. That's it for the video. Uh, from here on out, it's just uh, 
you know, people screaming and uh, being wildly excited about uh, jumping in 40 degree water in the middle of December of 2007. That was uh, last year's plunge. So that's it on this. And, and just the last thing I'll say is uh, I just I just went back and checked. This episode of the Best of the Left podcast is uh, after starting in January 2006. This is the 246th episode we've produced. And I just want to reaffirm uh, that this is a free show. Every new show we make from here until eternity will always be free. No shows will ever be made um, that will will be premium content available only to paying subscribers or anything like that. I mean, this show is meant to be consumed by as many people as I can possibly get to listen to it because I think the information is important. Uh, I like doing it. I, I and I like that people enjoy it and find it useful. You know, this is a free service. Um, it takes an enormous amount of time to get it all done. And what I'm asking in return for all of this work is just every once in a while for your help in a variety of ways. Um, you know, maybe sometimes it's donations, sometimes it's sending in clips, sometimes it's telling your friends, whatever it is. Right now, what I'm asking is if you can take the time and just donate five or ten bucks. Um, I'm trying to reach a thousand dollars, and right now we're at 380, and I'm pretty sure my family's tapped out. So um, if a hundred of you donate an average of you know five or ten dollars, we'll be totally set, and that's so doable. It's so doable. It's right there. I can taste it, and uh, and so I really appreciate it. If you guys can help me out, visit bestoftheleft.com. Follow the link right there at the top of the homepage. You'll see the, the donation page is really simple. You know, you can send in a check if you want, but, you know, it's all done by credit card now. I never touch the money. It goes straight to, you know, the credit card uh, account and, and gets debited right away. It's totally simple, and... Um, and you'll see, you know, if, if you visit, you will see where we are at at this moment on the uh, on the on the donation meter. So that is it for today. Coming to you from inside the Beltway at outside the border and conventional wisdom of Washington D.C. This is Jay. This has been the Best of the Left podcast. Coming to you from bestoftheleft.com. Burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor Will take you out any open door This is not my life It's just a fond farewell to a friend